Greetings, friends. My name is Mark Huddle. I'm an associate professor of history in the Department of History and Geography at Georgia College and the director of the college's Center for Georgia Studies. Welcome to our latest collaboration with WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's national public radio affiliate. Thanks for tuning in. The American South has always had a peculiar place in the American mind. Stories by and about the South have an integral place in our culture. Indeed, what would the South be without the power of stories? In the generations following the Civil War, tales of the South's economic travails and reactionary racial mores were commonplace in regional and national media, in Southern literature, and they often played an outsized role in our national politics. As the rest of the country was swept up in the tumult of economic modernization, the South was left behind, a backward economic backwater that proved a drag on the nation's economic health. The South's often violent race relations, its clinging to dated traditions, and its institutions of Jim Crow segregation were the fodder of an image of a brutal, degraded South that was out of step with the modern age. Those stories fueled what the scholar Fred Hobson has called the Southern Rage to Explain, which contributed to perceptions of Southern defensiveness and otherness within the broader context of American life. In the decades after World War II, those perceptions about the region were both confirmed and undermined. With the rise of the Sun Belt, the South was transformed. In many ways, it became the engine of American economic growth. At the same time, a great civil rights movement arose that challenged the South's racial traditions and made the region the focal point for an extended debate of what it meant to be an American. Now, of course, one of the interesting things about stories we tell is that they mask as much as they reveal. We need our stories to actually do something. We need them to address the contradictions and paradoxes of our experience. There's the material reality of that experience, and then there are the stories we tell to help us understand and explain what is happening. And again, the South has been the site for much of that kind of storytelling. Our guest is Dr. Zachary Lechner, Assistant Professor of History at Thomas Nelson Community College in Hampton, Virginia, and the author of a fine new book, The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southerness, 1960-1980, just recently published by the University of Georgia Press. Dr. Lechner focuses his analysis on a particularly chaotic period in American history, the 1960s and 70s, a period in which the country was struggling with a racial crisis, political assassination, spiraling urban violence, a crippling and divisive war in Vietnam, the scandal of Watergate, and a general sense of spiritual rootlessness. As the nation lurched from crisis to crisis, individuals from across American culture in journalism, the arts, in TV and film, in popular music and politics, often looked to create an imaginary South, or more accurately, Souths, plural, to combat the upheavals plaguing our society. These imaginings were rooted in myth, but as Dr. Lechner so powerfully argues, we cannot understand recent American history without an understanding of how people conceive the South 
as well as what those stories about the South erased. Zach Lechner, thanks so much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's good to be here. Zach, this is not your old pappy's Southern history. You, you draw from traditional historical studies of the South, but also cultural and media studies, uh, literary and film analysis. Uh, there's an extended engagement with popular music. What was the genesis of this project? What drew you to the study of the South as an imagined community? This is a project that began in, in graduate school, and it's not the the project I envisioned working so much of my uh, adult academic uh, life on. Actually, I came into graduate school thinking I would study something about antebellum southern farmers. And I think that was a topic I arrived at just because I was really previously interested in the American Civil War. And I thought to myself, well, that seems like a lot of people that study the American Civil War. Maybe I could carve out a, a niche in a, in, a, in a terrain that's a little less traveled. But then once I got into graduate school, I realized I can actually study popular culture, that that's a legitimate form of, of analysis. I just had never really realized that before, um, having been so schooled earlier in my life in political and, and military history. And so I think that the South, my interest in the South, as well as my you know burgeoning interest in popular culture and particularly music, resulted in me kind of fusing together those two ideas. So it wouldn't be a study of, of the South as it was uh, exactly. It would be a study of the South as it was perceived, as it, as it was imagined. Why is it that people outside the South at particular moments in American history feel that need to create, whether they understand it this way or not, a kind of mythology about this region in particular? Yeah, that's a really good question. The South can mean so many different things. I draw on the, well, he's actually an anthropologist, but he's also really a philosopher, Claude Levi-Strauss. And he said something along the lines of, you know, when people are encountering problems to which there are really no easy or clear solutions, they turn to the realm of myth. And I think the South, since it really was considered a, a separate region, somehow part of the United States, but, but yet not part of it, Americans have looked to that region to not only identify potential solutions, positive imaginings uh, of the South, but also looking to the South as everything that the nation should not be. And so there's just this, this long kind of continued history of Americans, you know, looking southward, trying to use the region to alleviate different anxieties about industrialization, about political change, cultural change, that, you know, when you really get down to it, were there any clear, identifiable solutions to some of these problems? Not necessarily, but by creating kind of a version of the South and really kind of a version of America that seemed to have had it figured out, that seemed to offer a solution out of these seemingly intractable problems then that's where the South comes in and, and why it plays such an integral role, not just throughout American history, but particularly during this moment that we're talking about of tumult in the 1960s and the 1970s. You 
You're listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Zachary Lechner about Lechner's new book, The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southerness, 1960 through pretty interesting typology, right? The various ways in which groups in the culture have used the South to tell a particular story. You describe the vicious South, for instance, the changing South, the down-home South, the countercultural South. Each of these imagined Souths create a narrative that's deployed in a variety of ways, sometimes at the same time, which I think is really interesting. But for instance, your, your study begins with this, what you call the vicious South. How do you define that? And how is this imagined South used? Yeah, the vicious South is kind of similar to something I said just a moment ago. It, it's that version of the South that is either everything that America purports not to be, or just not even really part of America, kind of America's other. It's a redheaded stepchild, as it were. It allows Americans, particularly those of centrist or perhaps even, you know, liberal persuasions to feel better about themselves. So to say America is racist, they might say, well, you know, no, America is, is, is fine. It's really the South, right? That's, that's where the problem, that's where your problems are. America is a rich country. Okay, the South is, is poor, but the rest of America is rich. So the South becomes a place to kind of put all of one's own anxieties about everything that is or might be wrong with America and isolate it in one particular place, you know, put it all together and seal it up in one you know, easy punching bag, right? Mm-hmm. That's the vicious South in a, in a nutshell. And it, it, it becomes popular, probably to most of your listeners will, will know it from various images of the civil rights struggle. So think about those two famous images from the the Birmingham Civil Rights Campaign in 1963 of of police dogs being you know sicked on uh, African Americans or African American protesters being sprayed with with water hoses you know that those are kind of shorthand for the vicious South the South is other it's racist it's irredeemable it's everything that America strives not to be and in the eyes of many Americans everything that America isn't. Okay, so the South is the problem. It's, uh, it's you know, public enemy number one, in, in other words. And so we see that in civil rights photographs. We see that in reporting about the civil rights movement. But we also see it in a number of publications, uh, books of the, of the era as well. And so in my book, I talk about John Steinbeck's Travels with Charlie. You know, John Steinbeck was a famous California-based novelist. And in the early 1960s, he started out it was a trek across America, and he said he was going in search of America. And I think that if he was looking to try to find the good America or the idealized America, by the time he finished his journey uh, in the American South, he wasn't finding it there. Um, and so he writes about 
the desegregation drama at a New Orleans school where, infamously, there was a group of white women who would daily stand outside the school that is being uh, integrated and scream just terrible, terrible things at the African-American children who were, who were just trying to get into that school and get an education. And so Steinbeck is presenting this version of the South, which, of course, has an incredible, incredible amount of basis in truth. It's not like he's inventing it, but presenting the, the South as just this irredeemable other. It's the worst of America. It's everything that America desperately wants not to be. And is trying to convince itself that outside of the South, it is not. In that section of the book that you've mentioned, you also describe To Kill a Mockingbird. And I was intrigued by your analysis of that novel because it, on the one hand, delineates that vicious South in, in the person of Tom Yule. But in, in another way, it also at least offers a nod towards what you call the changing South in the, in the person of Atticus Finch who may be paternalistic, but whose heart and, and moral center contribute to his decision to defend a, a black defendant in, in this rape trial. So in a lot of ways, popular culture, at, at least as, as you describe it, t- could be more complex in the way that it ultimately is portraying the South than perhaps the media, which technically would have been considered putting the reality of the South out on display for everyone to see. What does that tell us about how these imagined Souths act in the world? For one thing, it it just shows the conflicted thinking that Americans have about the South. You know, even in the midst of the civil rights era, a public relations disaster for, for the white South. I mean, there's just so many negative images of snarling Southern whites screaming horrible things at black protesters or, um, you know, folks trying to integrate schools, uh, you know, uh, engaging in, in violence against these individuals as, as, as well. And yet, you're right, at the, at the same time, there is this desire to, for whatever reason, whether it's, an, it's a desire just to kind of see this racial wound in America healed uh, or whatever, but there's this desire to, at the same time, see the South as on the mend. And that is what the changing South suggests. And these are actually all narratives that are engaged in by both Southerners and non-Southerners. Right. So I would say the changing South narrative is one that's particularly popular among white Southerners, although others use it. So certainly you have Harper Lee in, in To Kill a Mockingbird presenting a Bob Ewell as kind of the embodiment of the vicious South. I mean, he's what the scholar Allison Graham would describe as the, the cracker from hell. You know, it's like Robert Mitchum's character in Cape Fear is, a, is another great example of that kind of cracker from hell type who's uh, around during in the novels and the films of this era. But at the same time, yeah, Atticus Finch, he's, he's part of the changing South. And the changing South is this view that, yes, the South is racist. The white South has its problems, particularly those related to race. However, there are good Southerners good Southerners like Atticus Finch, who's either a moderate on race, which he's kind of more of a moderate in the novel and then more of a liberal in the film, but regardless, somebody who is willing to do what is right, you know, in, in Finch's case, to defend a black man who's wrongfully accused of raping a white girl who happens to be Bob Ewell's daughter. And so what Harper Lee does in this book, is 
she clearly makes the argument that the, the racism of the South, such that it is, it's not an institutional problem. It's really a problem of individual Southerners. And if enough individual Southerners like Atticus Finch, enough of the good Southerners will rise up and say, this is wrong, we need to engage in fairness and inequality, then the great stain of racism that afflicts the South can be solved. And this is a message that I think is appealing on a broader level, because as Americans, you know, many white Americans who are not familiar with or ignore the myriad racial problems that are occurring in their own cities and towns, as they begin to, quote unquote, discover them in the mid to late 1960s, they, in a very almost ironic way, they they look to the white South as an example in this changing South notion, as an example to help guide them through their racial troubles, as it were. And we see Jimmy Carter in 1976 talk about this. So it's a very kind of mainstream view. And it's, it makes sense when you really get down to it. But on the surface, it just it can seem very confusing thinking about how this redemptive South and this, the South as aberrational, um, how they can coexist. And in some ways, they play off each other in the early to, to mid 1960s. Well, I think you know, that the only way, at least to my mind, that that, that can happen is by erasing black Southerners. And I think one of the things that interests me about the vicious South is that it's the one place in these narratives structures where necessarily the black experience is visible, even if it's just in the context of violence and and oppression. When you start to move into the 1960s and you start to think about these notions of a changing South a down-home South, these Southern imaginaries that are therapeutic, that point in the direction that perhaps there could be some salvation, there could be some healing, there could be some redemption. The stories that are driving that narrative seem to eliminate any black participation in that. The race thing disappears. Listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Zachary Lechner about Lechner's new book, The South of the Mind American Imaginings of White Southerness, 1960 through 1980. One of the things that interests me about the vicious South is that it's the one place in these narratives structures where necessarily 
the black experience is visible, even if it's just in the context of violence and, and oppression. When you start to move into the 1960s and you start to think about these notions of a changing South, a down-home South, these Southern imaginaries that are therapeutic, that point in the direction that perhaps there could be some salvation, there could be some healing, there could be some redemption. The stories that are driving that narrative seem to eliminate any black participation in that. The race thing disappears. So for instance, you talk uh, at some length about the Andy Griffiths show and the, and the role of shows like the Beverly Hillbillies in the 1960s. What is the significance of, of shows like that? I would just first say that I, I think you're right in what you're saying about the changing South, although I would bring up an example that is part of the kind of the changing South narrative, like in the heat of the night, because in the heat of the night, you clearly have a very kind of strong black character in the case of Virgil Tibbs. However, he really is in some ways a mechanism for the racial awakening of the racist Sheriff Gillespie. So even though he is there, he's not that different really from the voiceless or fairly voiceless black characters in Harper Lee's novel. You know, really the main story line of, of The Changing South is it's, it's about not African-Americans working to overcome racism, but about whites waking up to the need to overcome their own racism. But yeah, I mean, with the down-home South, like race in particular is just almost on the surface, at least, kind of completely obliterated. So the down-home South plays out largely on sitcoms, like the ones you mentioned most popularly, The Andy Griffith Show, which begins airing in 1960 and ends its run in 1968, and The Beverly Hillbillies, which begins in 1962, as James Meredith is actually attempting to integrate the University of Mississippi and all the violence uh, is going on that accompanied that, um, and ends its run in 1971. So these are sitcoms that portray the uh, kind of small town and rural South in, in what I would argue very positive terms. I mean, Mayberry is a place where you want to live because everybody knows each other. Everybody is closely connected. The ills of modernity seem to be very distant. What we see with the Andy Griffith show is that when outsiders will enter the community of Mayberry, you know, usually in the form of an outsider, and hilariously, it's like somebody from the big city, you know, like Raleigh, okay, you know, the corrupter from Raleigh or Charlotte, uh, you know, coming in to, to uh, you know, try to tell the, the Mayberryans what's wrong with their lifestyle, how they should really live. You know, by the end of the episode, they've been converted. You know, the so-called hicks, you know, have, have won. They've been shown to be the true founts of, of, of wisdom, the preservers of an appealing tradition that is lacking, not just in, in Raleigh or Charlotte, the viewer will, will gather, but in, you know, in Buffalo, New York, and Los Angeles, California, and you know, other places you know, throughout, uh, throughout the country that are not the South. Now, the Beverly Hillbillies is, is, is based on a kind of a more outlandish concept. It's a fish-out-of-water comedy. These are uh, folks, the Clampets, who are from the Missouri Ozarks, and they, you know, strike it rich. Uh, they discover oil on their property, and then they hightail it to, to Beverly Hills, California. Now, that show pokes a lot of fun at its, at its characters, but even so, it still shows them constantly as superior to their Southern California neighbors, who are shown as very venal and, and boorish and just money-obsessed. And so it's a very positive discussion of white southernness that we see on both the Beverly Hillbillies and the Andy Griffith show. 
Now, the thing is, this positive image of white Southerners, unfortunately, seems to be only achievable, according to these programs producers, by almost totally eliminating African-American faces. So in some ways, it presents the message that, you know, kind of a ideal community can only be achieved if it's, if it's almost completely lily white or it just pushes African-Americans to, to the background. Because I think one of the most interesting things I discovered when, you know, watching the old Andy Griffith shows is that it is not lily white. There are black people in Mayberry. If you notice closely, if you look at some of the people in the background during crowd scenes, you, you will see African-American faces. But with one exception, during the whole run of the show, they never have speaking parts. We don't know anything about them. And yeah, so that's the message. A model community is a, almost an entirely white community, or it's a well-segregated community in which black residents are unimportant and almost completely voiceless. So even though the down-home South seems kind of a nice, you know, kind of beguiling version of white Southerners, I think there's the darker, darker layer to it that's easy to miss sometimes. Well, you, you do mention the, you know, the infamous Slave Master Granny episode in, in Beverly Hills. And I think mm-hmm. that the reaction to that episode of the Beverly Hillbillies is really telling. Can you describe that? Uh, are you referring to the Simon Legree episode? That's correct. Or? Yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah. People were understandably dismayed by it. If I'm not mistaken, the episode aired in 1970 toward the end of the run. So just to briefly describe it for your listeners, an African-American woman who does some work for the Clampett's uh, banker ends up, you know, through, uh, you know, comic hilarity at the, uh, the Clampett mansion. And she's just kind of doing some, some kind of housework. And anyway, there's a big misunderstanding that, that occurs because for some reason she dressed in like antebellum style garb, her brothers arrive at the Clampets and they get this idea that she's somehow been enslaved or, or, or something. It's just a terrible, very offensive comic premise. And the fact that the title of the episode is called Simon Legree Drysdale, named after her boss, Mr. Drysdale, combining that with the name of the vicious slave master and Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin just shows how clueless the writers and producers of the show were particularly it's 1970, you know, like this is, it's not like this was 1962, you know, a lot had changed since then, right? I mean, this is the era of black power and just much more awareness of the problematic nature of those kinds of, those kinds of depictions. So the problem is whenever programs like this explicitly treated topics related to race, being kind of stuck in a comic setting kind of limited them and then threatened, in the case of this episode, to just make a very, very offensive product. So in some ways, it kind of makes sense that they shied away from the racial issue just, just from a commercial standpoint. Because, boy, when they, when they wandered into it, they really messed up. You're listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Zachary Lechner about Lechner's new book, The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southerness, 1960 through 1980. 
we've come to the end of the 60s, I think it's, it would seem counterintuitive, but one of the interesting parts of your book talks about how some elements of the 60s counterculture embraces an imagined rural white South, even in the midst of the civil rights conflict and the reactionary politics, you, you would think that, that perhaps the counterculture would look askance, and of course many, many people did, but at the same time, you find an embrace of this imagined white South, especially by way of music. What do you think the impulse is that, that's driving rock and roll bands from outside of the region to embrace country sounds, to embrace country motifs? in their music. Right. right. I think that rock bands playing country music, although on the face of it seems rather strange, actually makes a good, a good deal of sense. You know, when you think about the fact that prior to the country rock movement, if you want to call it that, of the beginning of the late 1960s, I mean, there had been a you know, much, much bigger folk music revival that dated back to the 1950s and extended into the, into the early 1960s. And, you know, in that moment, you had a lot of young people, hip young people, you know, kind of proto-hippies, if, as it were, discovering Southern folk music and, and blues music and, and even what we would consider country music. And so I think with that earlier embrace of white and black Southern roots music, I don't think it's that much of a stretch, really, for rock bands, long-haired rock bands, to start playing country music, you know, um, I mean, if you're going to play the Carter family, it's, you know, it's not that much of a uh, distinction really between them and say Hank Williams, you know, I think in the, in the popular consciousness. Now the counterculture is very concerned with authenticity. And of course, authenticity is a very loaded term and it means many different things to many different people. So for musicians, I think they're just really interested in trying to play what they consider good music or good country music. And so they shy away from the kind of country music that they don't like or that they consider inauthentic. And it would basically just be, in many ways, modern country music, the Nashville sound of syrupy strings, you know, not a lot of banjos and fiddles and, and steel guitars. And I think counterculturalists, they largely embrace that traditionalism as well. But surprisingly, in many points, they, they say, you know, we don't necessarily like rock music that's purports to be country that is only seeming to try to ape the sound of country music. We want these long hair rockers to kind of put their own unique spin on it. And so there's the kind of the one impulse of musicians to just move in a different musical path, which is what musicians do. They try to break boundaries. They try to trailblaze, musically speaking. But then you have a related, but in many ways, different impulse on the part of hippies to look to the white South as refracted through country and country rock music as a source of untapped authenticity for their larger critique of modern American society, which they think has gotten too technocratic and, and too rational. And so the White South, in their mind, is, is a place where traditionalism, you know, fa- you know close-knit family life still are valued. So you mentioned that, yes, some counterculturalists say, the white South, no thank you. You know, it's a racist place, yuck, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting as I did research in countercultural newspapers, which is a good, pretty good source of, you know, hippie thought, 
is that a lot of counterculturals had a pretty sophisticated critique of uh, racism in America. And many of them recoiled from the idea that racism is just strictly a Southern problem. And in fact, that's why there's a lot of hippie critiques of the film Easy Rider, which you think, oh, well, that's like the hippie film, right? Well, a lot of hippies don't, didn't like Easy Rider because they thought it was, sorry for the pun, but it was too easy. You know, it just, it just said, you know, white Southerners are bad. They will, you know, kill hippies and we get rid of white Southerners or reform them or whatever, then the problem is solved. And many hippies would say in these newspapers, no, it's a national problem. The sickness might be most acute in the South, but this is a national racial sin that we've got to deal with. And so arguing that racism was not just strictly a a Southern problem, but was really a national problem, I think allowed a lot of counterculturalists to more easily engage with the white South, to view it in positive terms, and to view its, its imagined traits as part of the hippie toolkit for combating the most serious problems that they thought were facing modern American society. One of the questions that this section of the book raised in my mind is, is the problem of genre, which is something I struggle with quite a lot because, to my mind, genre, in many instances, is simply rooted in the marketplace. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a function of political economy. Mm-hmm. And when you start to, to talk about American Roots music, you look, especially you, you mentioned the revivals. I think that's a, an interesting you know, place to start because you, know, you think about something like the anthology of American folk music, Harry Smith's uh, classic an- anthology that seems to have been such a wellspring for musicians you know, that ran the gambit of old-timey revival bands like New Lost City Ramblers all the way to Jerry Garcia and the Grateful Dead. And here's this, this massive compendium of music. And there are Carter family songs. There are these old-timey country songs on there that are right next to blues songs, that are right next to medicine show songs and jug band tunes. And so there's this stew of American culture that these young musicians are drawing from that has a, a massive influence on 60s rock and roll, right? I mean, they are playing the blues and they are now adding you know, steel guitar and country sounds into it. It has always felt to me when we start to talk about something like country rock that it's almost contingent on erasing black Southerners from that equation, that there is something that is separate in the country rock sound that somehow isn't referencing the 12-bar blues, which is just not true. So how did you deal with this issue of kind of teasing out the genre as you worked your way through this study? Yeah, I think that's what you're, you're saying. I mean, you're making a good point, because if you look at, if you look at say, like Graham Parsons, Grant Parsons is a native Southerner, and he will join the birds and, you know, kind of help them to expand their country repertoire. And then he'll form the Flying Burrito Brothers with Chris Hillman of the birds, and they'll play you know, what we would uh, define as country rock music before striking out on his own solo career. And Grant Parsons, you know, he, yeah, he described his music as cosmic American music. And that was, you know, really kind of a mashup of rock, country, but also Southern soul music, too, you know. So the the Flying Burrito Brothers, they cover 
country songs. I mean, they they do you know they do six days on the road in live performances, and they recorded that one, you know. But they they also cover Aretha Franklin, so there is actually quite a bit of diversity within country rock. It's not every country rock recording or band just sounds like they're trying to do a Hank Williams impression, you know. But what I found though with counterculturalists with hippies is that they seem to really be kind of focused on this notion that that country music is the sole music of white people, you know, that really whatever its influences, that that this is music that is associated with with white Southern culture. So even though we can see there are a lot of elements of black music in, in that music, or there are a lot of elements of black music in just Southern country music, um, there's still the perception at the time that is shared in the counterculture and I think in the, in the culture at large that country music is white music. It's white Southern people's music. So again, I think it's, it's an issue of kind of reality versus perception. And again, the perception of the, of the, of the counterculture is that when we listen to country music, we're getting kind of an unvarnished view of white Southern life, which we can see that's more than a little problematic to make that argument. Well, I think you really nail it, though, when you start to talk about how this notion of authenticity is driving these musicians towards Nashville. But there's also something really ironic about that, right? These rockers making this pilgrimage to the Ryman, but it's almost at the same time. I mean, it's less than three years before Nashville artists like Willie Nelson disclaim Nashville authenticity and flee to Austin to get as far away from what they perceive to be this overly commercialized brand of music, they can't get away fast enough. At the same time, you know, I, I think that whole process was was also driven by economics as well, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there was a, a significant issue with the way that Nashville record companies were treating their musicians. So that drags me back in, you know, to this question of, of the marketplace and, and the role that it is playing in the ways in which these imagined Souths are being created. Listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Zachary Lechner about Lechner's new book, The South of the Mind American Imaginings of White Southerness, 1960 through 1980.
So that drags me back in, you know, to this question of, of the marketplace and, and the role that it is playing in the ways in which these imagined Souths are being created, uh, which I guess kind of connects to your section on Southern Rock, and in particular the way that you juxtapose two bands, the Allman Brothers, this sort of interracial counterculture band, and then Leonard Skinnerd who are very much more about what you term the masculine South. And I think I, you know, I mentioned to you in one of our communications that corporate radio, especially FM radio, corporate playlists, really come into heavy vogue in the 1970s. And by 1980s, it's all heavily corporatized. And even in central Ohio, you know, I was not born and raised in the South. I grew up in central Ohio in a rural area. We had one rock and roll station. And they just pounded us with Southern rock, in particular Leonard Skinner and bands like Molly Hatchet and Blackfoot and all these bands to the point where we all became punk rockers because we couldn't stand it anymore. <laughs> I mean, it was absolutely insane. But it, at the same time, it was, you know, it was being driven in a lot of ways by the marketplace, too. And that was what was selling. And that's what corporate radio was, was selling advertising on and draws me back into this sort of political economy that these sounds are are coming out of. Why did you decide to make this interesting juxtaposition between the Allman Brothers and Leonard Skinner? Well, I wanted a way to talk about Southern rock, which is a very important genre of music. Um, It emerges, you know, in, in, in the 70s when you start to see, I think, even more unapologetically positive imaginings of the South happen. One way to talk about Southern rock in a way that didn't just kind of dilute the discussion by having to get into like a bunch of the kind of other bands, I don't want to say also ran bands, but really they're, you know, they're, they're popular, but not quite as popular um, certainly as, as groups like Skinner and, and the Almonds, you know, so and I thought that, you know, Hey, one of the notions that guided me in this book is what was the most popular? You know, or can we try to just focus on very popular things, less kind of obscure forms of popular culture? And so, you know, obviously the Almonds and Leonard Skinner, I mean, they sell a lot of records. Not to say that, you know, Molly Hatchet, when they're a little bit later anyway, not that they, don't, they sell a lot of records too, but nothing in comparison to these other two bands. And I think that I focus on those two bands because of their popularity, but also just because they seem so different. And they were so different in, in, in many respects. And just in the way that their music sounded, in the way that they presented their own southernness. I mean, the Allman Brothers Band was very notably an integrated group from the beginning. They had a black drummer. They would later have a black bass player. And they were what they like to think of as a true brotherhood. You know, this was a, a group of brothers, black and white brothers. And they're coming together in the South, and they're setting up in Macon, Georgia, Right. Um, You know, at a time when the South is still changing and as, you know, Greg Allman and others associated with the band would say, you know, just uh, going around the deep South, a bunch of long haired, you know, hippie looking types with a with a black man in your band. I mean, that was like setting a match to gasoline that started a lot of fights that started a lot of trouble. So that was really kind of a revolutionary thing for them to do. And, you know, the music that they played was very much steeped in the black blues, you know, and they readily admitted that. 
And yet somehow they were able to pay homage, I think, to black blues music while also creating their own distinctive style of music. There was one Village Voice article that came out around the mid-70s that, you know, just focused on the sound of Greg Allman's voice, you know, and she, and she said, you know, Greg Allman's voice, it's this deep, powerful voice, but it's his own. It's not like he's trying to, you know, rip off a black blues artist's voice. You know, it is distinctly his own. So there was this progressive, what I call countercultural southernness of the Allman Brothers Band, and it just so clearly contrasted with the, what I refer to as the rebel macho of the Leonard Skinnerd group. Um, this was a band that, you know, talk about unapologetic white southernness. I mean, they, they very much were, were that, you know, they were violent incidents followed them around on the road. And, and the press certainly played that up. But, you know, they were a hard drinking, hard living, hard fighting band. And so that was the kind of reactionary nature of, of southern rock. You know, this was a band, Leonard Skinner, that throughout its career would hang a Confederate flag behind them on stage or, or use a Confederate flag at, at various points. And sure, the Almonds did on some occasions, you know, bring out a Confederate flag. But there was certainly a kind of, I, I would argue, a kind of a neo-Confederate sensibility to Leonard Skinner. And I think even some of their fans picked up on, on that, you know, this kind of idea that, oh, these guys are rebels, you know, kind of fight, fighting the good fight. And it just seemed that the Leonard Skinner perspective was very kind of closely associated with that tradition of white Southerners telling outsiders, hey, don't worry about the way we live and certainly don't tell us how we should live. So Leonard Skinner is not explicitly racist by by any means, but I think that they're kind of part of a conservative white Southern tradition that in many ways kind of sets them more in the camp of somebody like George Wallace than it does in the camp of, you know, Dwayne or Greg Allman. You're listening to a conversation between Center for Georgia Studies director Mark Huddle and historian Zachary Lechner about Lechner's new book, The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southerness, 1960 through 1980. One of the interesting things about Skinnerd is, but there is some sort of hedging at various times, but generally speaking, an embrace of George Wallace and George Wallace's 
politics, which, again, it should be juxtaposed with the way that Jimmy Carter, who you know, wins the White House in 1976, embraced the racial brotherhood uh, that was symbolized by the Allman Brothers. Right, right. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, you know, George Wallace, who I, I talk about at various points in the book, I mean, by, by 1976, he has moved away from his earlier segregationist positions, and he has found himself in kind of a strange spot of being, if not endorsed, at least um, accepted by a lot of mainstream Democrats, uh, you know, and he comes into, you know, 1976 campaign probably not terribly competitive, but still, you know, a representative of this kind of old, old South. So maybe he's, he's jettisoned the explicitly racist uh, appeals, but he's still this kind of older version of the demagogic Southern candidate. You can't forget, even though, you know, it's been 13 years, you know, you can't forget as a voter in 1976, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. I mean, it just, it, it lives forever, that line. And, you know, Wallace understands as he's competing in the Democratic primaries, he understands the, you know, the danger of, of somebody like Jimmy Carter to his political ambitions. Um, Jimmy Carter, he's the quote unquote good Southerner. And Wallace is the bad Southerner. Jimmy Carter is the more progressive candidate. He is a son of the White South, just like George Wallace is a son of the White South. They're, you know, roughly the same age. Wallace is a little bit older than Carter. But Carter is somebody who came of age during the Depression, and he lived around African Americans. And he can make a fairly compelling case that during the Civil Rights Movement, he at least was a moderate, and that he transitioned by the early 1970s to being a liberal on racial matters. So part of the appeal of Carter is that as the Ford campaign would argue in a memo in um, 1976, Carter is playing upon two essentially conflicting myths. One is the good old boy, white South, rural South, and the other is the black and white together South. You know, so Carter he combines like that desire of, of Americans, you know, to kind of look to the rural small town South as this kind of bastion of lost values. And, you know, so he's the, he's the down-home South, but he's also the changing, or maybe by this point, he's the changed South. You know, he's somebody, he's a white person who's come through the Civil Rights Revolution, and he was during it, and he's come out on the right side of, of history, in other words. You know, he supports civil rights, uh, and he did that as governor of Georgia, and a lot of voters expect him to do that as president. So this campaign against Wallace during the Southern primaries, Wallace is so frustrated because, you know, Wallace just bemoans the fact that, oh, you know, Jimmy Carter, he's the good Southerner, I'm the bad Southerner, you know, and he just complains about this. You know, he's, Wallace says, you know, I think all Southerners are good. Um, and, you know, he's talking about all white Southerners. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's just the moment for George Wallace had passed. And Jimmy Carter, in, in many ways, is kind of the pinnacle of these positive Southern imaginings. He brings it all together, right? You know, the the kind of the racially progressive southernness of the change south. He's the, you know, the down-home south. And then also throw into that his religiosity. You know, he's a, he's a southern Baptist, and so he is able to tap into this new religious spirit, what Tom Wolfe 
the writer described as the you know the third great awakening, and so Carter is able just to I think bring it all together. Um, and even though you know he just he just barely beats Ford in the in the election, he uh, I think you have to argue that his expert wielding of his southernness it has to be considered a big part of the reason why he's able to win that election. Well, Zach, we are coming up on the end of our time, so let me ask you one last question. All good historical work tells us something about the time we are currently living in. After working your way through this study, what do you think we can learn from the south of the mind that might be applicable to our current dilemma? I guess maybe I would offer more of a word of caution than anything else. And, and, and what we need to be cautious about is trying to use the South, whether it's the white South or kind of the, the whole South together to try to imagine our way out of our problems. I think that perceptions of the South, Americans are going to have them, but very often they're founded on faulty information or incomplete information. And I think that when you try to imagine your way out of real world problems, rather than really dealing head on with those problems, I, I, you know, I, when you look for imagined solutions rather than real solutions, I think that that's a bad place to be. And so I guess I hope for my own career that, that people continue to imagine the South, you know, <laughs> but uh, I think it's shown throughout history. I think it's shown particularly in the 1960s that while it can empower people, it can also provide them with a whole set of illusions that obscures as much as it illuminates about their own current political or, or cultural dilemmas. All right, and we will leave it there. Dr. Zachary Lechner, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thanks very much, Mark. I really enjoyed it. One of the things that drew me to the study of history was the stories. I was lucky. Some of my earliest teachers were great storytellers. One of the things that drew me to the American South, to live and teach here, to raise my family here, was the stories. Maybe 30 years ago when I first moved here, I felt like a pilgrim in a strange and foreign land. But that feeling didn't last long. The strengths of this place were evident. People cared about their families, their communities. They had a powerful sense of the past, however tormented. There were stories here, strange and powerful stories that needed to be told. Now I say that in full recognition that in trying to tell my own story, I'm engaging in my own brand of myth-making. To make my way in this messy world, it's necessary to create a narrative that helps me to understand my complicated experiences. I am, as Zach Lechner would attest, creating my own imagined South. In my work, I often run across authors that speak of the power of place. The South has always exercised a special power in the minds of Americans from outside the region. The South is remarkably diverse, 
and its historical experiences have often run counter to the broader national myth-making project, and thus it has and is a useful foil for talking about our nation's singular problems. We need the South's contradictions, its paradoxes, and the bitter ironies of the place. We need its stories, its music and literature to better make sense of what it means to be an American. Lechner's book, The South of the Mind, is a creative addition to the literature of Southern history and American storytelling. You've been listening to the latest collaboration between Georgia College's Center for Georgia Studies and WRGC 88.3, Milledgeville's National Public Radio Station. I'm Mark Huddle, and thanks for tuning in.